Every American is acutely aware of the issues surrounding our health care system. We know miracles can happen, but we find ourselves bombarded by conflicting information and are uncertain of what and whom we can trust. We have some of the best medical care in the world for those who can afford it. Incredible new drugs that change people's lives but can be very costly. Many of the best doctors the world has ever seen, but not all are perfect. That's why Dr. Steve Feldman created the show, Getting Better Healthcare, to help walk us through the labyrinth, helping us understand how to take better care of ourselves and to better understand the challenges, issues, controversies, and complexities of our healthcare system as it exists and as it could be. For better health care and a better health care system, listen to the doctor. Now, here's Steve. Welcome to Getting Better Healthcare on webtalkradio.net. I'm your host, Dr. Steve Feldman. Our medical system is so complicated. We've got hospitals, doctors, drug companies, insurers, and a major player, the government, all involved in different ways. That's just the beginning. There's many, many more players in this system, a host of different people who are involved in giving us health care. Fundamentally, the primary relationship in healthcare is the patient-doctor relationship, but more and more, patients are getting care from other medical providers. On today's show, we focus on one of those medical providers, the physician assistant. Physician assistants are physician extenders. They're part of the healthcare team working with doctors, extending what the doctor can do. On our show today, we'll be talking with Wayne Von Sagan. Wayne has been a physician assistant for over 30 years. He's going to tell us about physician assistants, what they do, and his very interesting story about his work with his state medical board. Wayne, welcome to our program today. Thank you. I wanted to start by letting our audience know what a physician assistant is. What do patients need to know about physician assistants? Okay. Uh, physician assistants are uh, healthcare professionals that are licensed uh, to practice medicine with uh, physician supervision. And as part of their overall responsibilities, PAs conduct physical examinations. They diagnose and treat things, uh, order and interpret tests. Uh, counsel on preventative care, assist in surgery, minor surgery, and some practices they work as a, a second and assist in surgery. They write prescriptions and generally help the physician take care of the type of patients that that specialist or that family medicine or primary care medicine the doctor would, would see in their practice. It sounds like what you're saying is they do everything a doctor does. They make diagnoses, they do treatments. The big yes. difference is that they're supervised by a physician. They, they work as a team, and uh, in, in our case here, the, uh, the two PAs that I work with and, and the uh, physician that supervises all three of us, we see uh, a large number of patients a day, every, every day through the week, and, uh, and the uh, physician then reviews the charts and helps us with any problem cases. And it's a very good uh, experience for us because we can learn, we can see the things that are the, uh, instead of the horses, the things that are the zebras, we can uh, uh, learn from those things and uh, make ourselves even better over a period of time. Besides needing to be supervised by a, a physician, is there anything, any limitations on what PAs are allowed to do? The scope of practice is a term that uh, we are required by um, most medical boards, most regulatory boards, I should say, 
to describe what our scope of practice is. And a scope of practice means what your supervising physician does. Like, for example, my supervising physician is an occupational medicine certified uh, physician. So my practice here is limited to that particular practice. I can't go out and do brain surgery or do neurology or do something that's completely out of his area that he would not have the ability to supervise that activity. So it is limited to what your supervising physician would normally do or, or allow you to do in the paperwork that you send to the regulatory board. Now, you've been doing this, uh, being a physician assistant, for over 30 years now. I imagine that with experience, you get to be very, very good at the things you do. I would like to think so. <laughs> well, can you let our listeners know how the concept of physician assistance started? You know, I think of, of doctors as having a, a complete monopoly on the practice of medicine. And maybe, you know, at the periphery, there's there, there are other fields that, that get involved. But physician assistance, that at some point, must have been a completely new concept. That's right. And I think it kind of uh, came in the mid-60s when uh, physicians and some educators recognized that there was a shortage and an uneven distribution of primary care physicians. And one of the uh, original pioneers was uh, Dr. Eugene Stead at Duke University Medical Center in North Carolina, who was one of the first uh, ones to describe and to put into uh, training some uh, former uh, Navy corpsmen, you know, uh, medical corpsmen, that when they came back to the United States after uh, Vietnam or after their military service, they were having trouble finding work, but yet they were highly skilled uh, medical corpsmen on the battlefield and were treating people and saving lives and, you know, treating minor things, but yet they didn't have the credential or the regulatory authority to be able to practice any type of, type of medicine. So he started a PA program in... Uh, 1965, and the first class graduated two years later, and they started practicing, and now there are over 79,000 PAs in the United States, and instead of one program, there's 142 programs in the United States now, several in other countries, Belgium, uh, Canada, uh, there's several other countries who have picked up the concept, and it's gone international in the last 10 or 15 years. 79,000 physician assistants. That's basically one for every 10 doctors. Is it? I'm yeah, not roughly sure. in the United States. Mm -hmm. So um, physician assistants started with the idea that, okay, we need more doctors in rural communities. By creating uh, physician assistants, we'll be able to extend the reach of physicians into rural communities. I get the sense now that physician assistants extend physicians in many, many other ways. I practice in dermatology. I think dermatologists are among the biggest users of physician assistants alongside orthopedists and ophthalmologists. It must, it's an idea that has really caught on because it, it's efficient and it actually helps the physician to make better use of their time so they can see the really complicated cases or consult with the PAs about the cases that they're seeing and after a doctor and a PA work together for several years, it can become a very smooth, well-oiled operation that can uh, uh, maximize the time efficiency of the pro pro uh, process and help the patients get a better uh, 
in and out experience and feel like they've been talked to and communicated with and gotten appropriate treatment. And uh, then if there's a problem, why then the physician can help, uh, can any can anytime come and see a particular patient. Uh, although some practices have, have a situation where their scope of practice allows them to work with the physician not even being on site, say a satellite clinic or a uh, rural health clinic, that the physician may come uh, a few days a week to review and sign papers. But uh, most physicians work in the same office and their physician supervisor is right there with them. So it's it's a very interesting way to do, and it seems to be very efficient. And uh, I think an uh, interesting thing, the largest employer of PAs in the world now is the U.S. military. That does not surprise me. So you know what they are? If they're spending the taxpayers' money, they're going to try to spend it as, as appropriately as possible, usually, uh, and to uh, try to try to maximize the effect and get the get the most out of their patient care experience with the PAs and their physicians. Let's let's talk about satellite clinics for just a moment. I get the sense that among physicians, there's mixed feelings about how appropriate is to have patients cared for by a physician assistant. I think many doctors would say, look, I went to four years of college, and then I went to four years of medical school, and then I had four years of specialty training, and patients deserve first-class care. They shouldn't be seen by second-class providers. And they look at, at what they're seeing coming from other doctors' offices, from the PAs who see who, patients who are seen by a PA, and they look and they see doctors who are supervising large numbers of physician assistants, and they question whether there's really any supervision at all. Is that a problem? Um, in some states it has been, and there have been actual limitations of the number of PAs per doctor allowed by law. And I know in the state that I'm in, uh, a few years ago, they re removed that because basically the physician assistant is able to do what the physician delegates to them, and the physician is responsible ultimately for what the PA does. So if the PA is working outside their scope of practice and their abilities, then they're going to get in trouble sooner or later. I, I would say I, I, I want to take issue with your word of saying that physician assistants are second-class providers. I would say that, you know, we, we feel that we're more a part of the medical care team so that the physician is the head of the team, the PAs uh, act as a, as a middle-level type, uh, you know, uh, handling probably 80% of what would go on in a practice, and that 20% or so that may be more complicated or maybe, like we say, the zebras would uh, would uh, fall to the doctor or be uh, followed up by the doctor in some way, shape, or form, or come back for a follow-up visit. Uh, and then other parts of the team members are uh, uh, nurses, uh, CMAs, uh, x-ray techs, and other people, phlebotomists, that we work with every day. So there's a lot of people on the team that help the doctor already. And, you know, we don't really consider any, although we consider the physician the leader of the team, we we don't really want to consider ourselves that our care is, quote, second class, unquote, because I think it's just almost in many cases as good or better than a physician can deliver. I, I want to thank you for, for um, making that crystal clear. When I mentioned second class, it certainly wasn't my opinion. I, I understand. Just no problem. What, what no some problem. doctors would say. And, and I want to share with you my thoughts on why some doctors feel this way. Um, doctors who've worked with a PA, I think, in, 
is my general sense is they, they find it to be outstanding, an outstanding way to extend the services they offer to patients. When a doctor has never worked with a PA, you could think of that doctor as being in a different group, a different compartment. When that doctor sees patients who've been seen by a PA in another office, it's probably because something went wrong. Because if nothing had gone wrong, they wouldn't have gone to this other doctor. Not and, necessarily. And, and so, but well, more often than not, that is that, that is the case. And so, when a doctor it, from their compartment is looking at another doctor or, or at the care from a PA, they're much more likely to have seen that other doctor's or that physician assistant's failures and not their successes, because the successes tend to stay in the same practice. The, the people who are unhappy tend to migrate to another practice. What, why were you thinking that wasn't the case? Well, I would say this because, I mean, the fact that a PA or a physician, for that matter, in primary care, or say in my case in occupational medicine, refers to a dermatologist or an orthopedist or a neurologist or a heart specialist uh, is not seen as a failure. It's just that we don't have the specialty training in some cases to deal with that. And often, I would say this, in the situation where we have a lot of orthopedic injuries in occupational medicine, you know, strained backs and injured feet and uh, uh, injured uh, joints, shoulders, knees, and so forth, is that we do a lot of orthopedic referral. And I don't, I don't see it as a, as a failure. I see it more as they have the tools and the time and the equipment to be able to do the arthroscopic surgery and the specialized things that orthopedists do now. And often, when I call the orthopedist's office, the orthopedist has got a book uh, his self booked out five to six weeks and we can't get an appointment, but the orthopedic PA in that office can help us get that patient in, see him the same day, and really the orthopedic PA in the orthopedic practice helps us see our patients quicker, get them in and out, get their, their problems solved, and if they're going to be needing surgery, they get to the surgeon a little faster because they've actually been sorted through the system to get into the you know surgery schedule. That's a very nice example of how physician assistants fit into the team and how they extend the ability of that busy orthopedic surgeon to meet the needs of their referral population. At the same time, imagine you had two orthopedists in a single town, one of whom has never worked with a PA and the other who does. Though The orthopedist who's never worked with the PA is probably not going to see a lot of that PA's successes from that other practice because the successes are going to stay with that practice. And so you could see why some physicians might have the misimpression that uh, physician assistants generally don't provide as good a care uh, as, as that doctor themselves does. Does that make sense? Well, I mean, in, in a sense, a primary care physician who is not trained in orthopedic uh, surgery or neurologic surgery or something like that they are limited by their own training in the sense that they refer those people out also. So they don't consider that a failure when they refer them to somebody who can handle that type of uh, problem at a surgical level or a specialist level. Uh, and, and I would say just like a PA now working in a team practice with a physician in, say, primary care, internal medicine or family medicine or something like that or Ahmed like I am. They, occupational medicine. Occupational the, medicine, yeah. yeah. They, they, we as a team say, well, this person needs to be seen by a specialist, an XYZ specialist. Why we will help them get into the system, you know, communicate our notes and so forth. And in many cases, the documentation, the exam, the examples, 
that we have sent with them on their patient charts actually are documentation that helps the specialist be able to understand better what's going on. So just like a specialist uh, re receives patients from primary care doctors, when they receive them from primary care PAs, it, they're receiving it often from the team. And in fact, what I will do is I will say, I'm, re I'm setting up the referral, but the actual referring physician is my, the, and I give them the name of my supervising physician. And that's who the report comes back to, and I will follow that case up. So it, it's a team effort. You're listening to Getting Better Healthcare on webtalkradio.net. I'm your host, Dr. Steve Feldman. I'm talking today with physician assistant Wayne Von Sagan. Uh, Wayne, we talked about how physician assistants were trained initially to provide primary care and how they're moving into other fields, providing more specialized care, working with more specialized physicians, again, still within their scope of practice, doing more detailed things. The, the physician assistants that I work with, uh, one of them specializes in, in working with our physicians who do more cosmetically oriented dermatology. Another one has a focus in, in, in contact dermatitis, allergies of the skin. She is extraordinarily good at that. I rely on her judgment um, much of the time. Tell me, is the training of physician assistants changing over time to meet these more specialized needs? I would say yes. Uh, initially, in uh, the time frame when I trained in the in the uh, mid seventies, late mid late to mid seventies, uh, the the idea of creating the curriculum for the physician assistant program training program, the didactic portion, was uh, to look at about what the most common eighty percent of a primary care practice would be: say hypertension, dermatitis. Uh, 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 Diabetes, depression. Diabetes control, depression, yeah, that kind of thing. And, and basically teach to that and train the PA to handle those things. And if something came in like malaria or something that was off the wall, you know, more of a zebra type thing, the early PAs would not be as well trained to do that thing and they would need to recognize their limitation and get consult with their supervising physician and either learn how to manage it or uh, talk with the doctor and, and their supervising physician and, 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 and find out how they want it managed. Nowadays, the training uh, curriculum has broadly expanded. They do uh, the, the common things, of course, but they're actually uh, learning how to problem solve and to look at some very complicated things that uh, sometimes specialists handle, but the physician assistants are trained in a broader area of things uh, that uh, they're now... Uh, graduating from a PA training program after 24 to 32 months with a master's degree in, in the kind of medicine. So uh, it's quite impressive how the PA training has, uh, has, uh, has evolved. I get the sense that, and this is no different between PAs and physicians, that maybe the number one most important factor that determines the success of a physician assistant and their relationship with their doc, the, the doctor supervising is personality. That you really want somebody, whether you're, it's your physician assistant or your physician, who knows when they don't know and who's right. ready to ask for help. That's exactly right. And, and just like a physician in primary care who may not be trained in specialty care, if that physician doesn't recognize where their training has ended and they don't know they're getting into the deep weeds, they need to ask for help and not, and that's where some doctors and the PAs also get in trouble. In many ways, it seems that 
physician assistants have evolved into roles that really probably weren't predicted when Dr. Stead first started this program back in the 1960s. That's true. There are some PAs now that work entirely in research, uh, in education of other PAs. Uh, there are uh, there is one PhD program in uh, in the military, and there are some PAs who work solely in administrative and management positions. Now, at the state level, um, medical practice is, is regulated by state medical boards. That's correct. And I know we currently have a physician assistant on the medical board in our state. That's correct. And you used to be on our medical board. Yes, that's right. Is that very common to have physician assistants on the medical boards? In it's, becoming, it's becoming more common. Uh, uh, the, the medical board in our state is considered what's called an allopathic board. It covers both MDs, DOs, physicians, EMS, and so forth, and nurse practitioners. And some states have separate regulatory boards for PAs and for DOs and for uh, physicians. In the allopathic states, uh, about 15 years ago, there was probably no physician assistants ever on a medical board. And in some states, there were never any DOs on a osteopathic physicians on medical boards. Our current uh, uh, medical board president in this state is a osteopath for the first time in 200 years. Um, well, that's, that, that's and, I guess, and, startling, but it's not totally shocking. What would be shocking is if a physician assistant was like the head of the medical board in the state. Now, <laughs> I, I, you and I know, jokingly, you used to be the president of the medical board of our I state. I didn't start out that way. I started, uh, I started a six-year term. It was a two-, three-year term as a, just a, a member of the board representing uh, physician assistants. They changed the state law in our state where the uh, uh, governor could appoint a physician assistant to represent physician assistant interests uh, on the medical board. And it really worked out well. It was very well accepted by the physicians on the board and the, and the public members of the board. And uh, after working with them on many committees and uh, taking uh, committee chairman posts, um, I was eventually on my second three-year term uh, uh, elected by the rest of the board to be a vice president of the board, and the following year I was elected as president of the board. My final year I was on the board in 1989 in the year 2000. So it was a great honor for me to uh, serve uh, the people of my state as a uh, PA uh, president of a medical board, an allopathic board, and I, I don't believe it has been uh, uh, equaled since. I think that was the only time a physician assistant has been president of the board. There are many states now, probably, oh, 30 or 40, that are have a, a physician assistant on the medical board as a member or as part of the uh, a regulatory board for mid-level providers. Uh, some states have, in, as in our state, a separate board that sep does the uh, nurse practitioners or advanced practice nurses. Uh, in our board, the medical acts in our state, the medical acts of NPs are regulated by the medical boards. NPs, the nurse practitioners, right? Are, they're regulated by the medical board. Uh, they're, they're, they're medical their medical acts. acts are regulated by the medical oh, board, but they fall under the nursing board for their other uh, 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 li uh, nursing practice licensing. That but, sounds uh, like but, it could get pretty complicated. 
So, you know, this was an incredible honor you had, and really something, a, a, a startling achievement that a physician assistant would be um, head of the medical board. Not so much startling to me in the sense that it's not the right thing to do. I think it's great, but I think it's historically surprising, almost like the end of discrimination, you know, and, and the end of segregation. So um, how how did doctors respond? I mean, you were elected by doctors. Was it was there any any negative feedback? Um, that, I, I was that accepted noticed? very well by the doctors that knew me and were on the board, and by uh, the uh, the uh, newsletter that we sent out. I had a lot of good positive feedback about the comments and the my perception of medical practice as a PA, seeing all kinds of medical practice, physician practice, and PA and NP practice. And there were, as as, as uh, you would expect, there are some doctors who would say, well, that person should never be the president. Why are they not letting a doctor do it? But now, I mean, the person that preceded me on the medical board as president was a public member who was not a the physician and who was not an NP and was not a physician, physician assistant. So uh, me being a, a physician assistant, I, I actually had more medical experience in years and, and, and knowledge than the public member that almost every state now has public members that represent the public's interest on the board. So it removes the perception that medical boards are there just to, you know, protect physicians and, and not protect the public. Most medical boards really are in the business of protecting their public in their state. And if that requires disciplining doctors or PAs or NPs, or anybody that they're regulating and uh, making sure they get registered and making sure they keep their CME up. It's it's really making sure that the people that are delivering health care in a state are the best that they can be and that they at least meet a minimum uh, requirement as the state law requires. You've brought up an issue I very much wanted to let our listeners know about, and that is what, what do medical boards do? I think you've begun to put our minds at ease because I think some people wonder, well, medical boards, bunch of doctors there to protect doctors. If There's no point in complaining to a, a medical board if, if you have a problem with a doctor because they're just going to, they're just going to band together and do whatever they can to support the physician. I have the general sense that that, that is far from true. As you've pointed out, there's beyond just doctors on the medical board, there's uh, community involvement, in your case, physician assistant. I get the sense that the medical board cares, number one, about the public and recognizing that doctors are generally good and generally salvageable will work with doctors if there's a problem, but they're not there to defend doctors who have a problem. That's right. And and I would say uh, some of the committees that we have on some of the medical boards are like malpractice, reviews all malpractice cases, and uh, complaint committees, which where if some member of the public says, you know, I felt I was uh, not treated properly or I, the doctor didn't do something right, they can write a letter or call to our medical board and make a complaint, and every one of the complaints is followed up by a member of the staff or an investigator. And in, at sometimes the uh, uh, regulated person, like a physician or a PA, may be called to the medical board to explain, okay, what, what, what about this? We've heard the patient side. We want to hear your side. And sometimes it's, it, it becomes a part of a pattern. If there are several people complaining about the same thing, then there may be action taken or the person may need uh, substance abuse counseling or treatment. 
or they may need to be uh, surrender their license until they can functionally do their practice properly. So the medical board does a number of things to protect the public that is often uh, not not generally seen and not understood. But the uh, the people in our in our state have a very good resource now because they can actually go online, put the name of the person, and click whether they're a doctor, a PA, or NP and actually see that person's uh, kind of a mini resume, where they trained, what their specialist uh, training is, what languages they speak, and what their interests are, uh, uh, medical interest in terms of specialization, and whether they've ever, ever been sued. And if they have a uh, disciplinary um, record with the medical board, they can actually read what they were disciplined for. It's a very open, uh, <laughs> it's a very open process. I think the Internet has made our whole world much more open, made information more freely available. I started an Internet rating, um, uh, a doctor rating website where patients can give their doctors feedback. And I think this is a, a, a marvelous tool. The one I started is DrScore, D-R-S-C-O-R-E.com. There's a number of these websites out there. I think it's great for patients to get online and give doctors feedback, for doctors to get that feedback and act on it, for doctors' scores to be openly available to the public so the public can see what kind of job doctors are doing. I think for the most part, the public's going to see that doctors are doing a great job. But all that said, if a patient has a serious issue with a doctor, the op doctor's operating drunk or sure. know, doing something inappropriate no, with patient, with. that needs to go directly to state medical boards for I mean, you could put it on an Internet rating website, but the main thing is you need to, to go to the medical board in your state if something like that's happening. Right. Because no, and the, the medical, medical board, board can do something about it. The medical board can take action. And in our state, they have a term called summary suspension. And that means if they forget some sort of a report of, uh, you know, very serious uh, allegation or report, uh, they can actually send the the legal, uh, uh, I should say, police professionals to take that person into custody until they can either be uh, psychiatrically treated or, from a substance abuse point of view, can be brought down. Uh, I remember one time I got a call when I was on the medical board uh, from the uh, secretary of the board saying we need to have a, uh, a meeting for a possible summary suspension and. The problem was that the doctor was not in the office that day, but he was out on the interstate shooting his gun at cars. So, so he literally flipped out and had some psychiatric problems. And, you know, no, he was in no shape to go back to the office and in no shape to treat patients. So he had to be subdued, and he was his, his license taken away immediately. And the medical board protected the public not only from getting shot at, but from having a bad medical care being delivered by such an individual. So it, most medical boards have that power to just suddenly take it away, but they have to be able to give due process and, and a follow-up to let them give their give the doctor's uh, point of view as to what was going on. So it's a legal process that's dealt dealt with. Wayne, I really appreciate you taking time to be on our show. At this point in the show, we like to give our guests the opportunity to give our listeners two, three, or more specific thoughts on things they should do uh, to make sure they're taking care of their health or making sure they get great health care or things that advice for how to make our health care system better. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I do. I've got a couple of interesting thoughts I'll bet you probably haven't heard before. 
Oh, wonderful. My first one is probably the most controversial, but it's one of those things when you think about it and hear what I say, you'll understand why I say it. My first healthcare advice tip is to buy and keep a dog. Buy and you, keep it, a it, dog? It gives you comfort. You understand unfailing loyalty. It forces you to get out of the house and take a walk and exercise, get sun in there to help your vitamin D work. Uh, it's probably regular walking uh, on a regular basis several times a day for your dog to do his business uh, is probably the best exercise you can do. A lot of people never go out and run, you know, three or four miles, but they'll get out and walk for 15 or 20 minutes several times a day with their pet. Uh, you don't have to purchase any extra equipment. You don't have to buy workout clothes or special tennis shoes or uh, sports gear or uh, golf clubs or anything like that. Uh, it, it teaches you responsibility for ongoing veterinary care for your pet, and it also reminds the humans that they need to take care of ourselves at least as well as we take care of our dog. No, people should be so good as to take care of themselves <laughs> as good as they take care of their pets. That's but that's great. one point. I've got another one. Another one I like is uh, I, I recommend in this uh, age of uh, community-acquired methicillin-resistant staph aureus, or what they call MRSA, infections, it's very good, I think, for the public to try to, um, if not every day, regularly use an antibacterial bar soap in the shower, something like Safeguard or Dial uh, 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 antibacterial. Some of those bar soaps are very good at helping to reduce the potential for community-acquired uh, MRSA infections and also to help prevent bacterial infections from just simple injuries that may have been unnoticed. But I think that's a very good tip, and it's very easy to do is just going and make sure that the bar of soap that you buy says it's actually antibacterial. Wonderful. Another one is uh, I think uh, it, wherever possible, I recommend patients try to use their over-the-counter medications in their single function form. In other words, decide what your basic problem is and treat it with the specific drug that helps to uh, treat that problem. You know, and initially, and if, if follow up with a healthcare provider for further advice if it's not resolving the problem. For example, if you have pain, you use Tylenol. If you have inflammation, you can use ibuprofen or naproxen. Congestion, you can use a decongestant like phenylephrine or Sudafed. And a histamine, you know, antibiotic, you know, different things like that. If you have an, a fungal, possible fungal infection, you can buy over the counter Lamisil. And basically, instead of using combined drugs where you're not sure what you're treating, is actually treat treat it one way, and if it's not getting better, then either change the treatment or follow up with a healthcare provider. And one of the most frustrating things is for a healthcare provider in primary care is people sometimes they have not even tried the simple remedies that most uh, people will try at home before they come into the office. So sometimes the very basic things will work very well. That's super. Do you want to share any others? I got one more. All right. And that's uh, basically, unless you're allergic to aspirin, I believe that every uh, adult over 30 at least should take an aspirin 81 milligram once a day, every day, since it's about the only proven way to, in all likelihood, add about 10 years to your life without taking it. 10 years? Else. Uh, there was a, several years ago, there was a multi year uh, study by the American Nursing Association in the United States that studied several of uh, the incidents of heart attack and problems, stroke and so forth, in uh, the nursing population, nursing profession, I should say. Mm -hmm. And they ran it over several years, 20 to 25 years, I believe, and, and they just monitored uh, everybody. They had a group that didn't take aspirin, the group that did. And the aspirin group literally had a much better uh, life 
uh, less strokes, less heart attacks, and just had much, uh, much better improved health. And they've actually found that the aspirin actually helps prevent some bowel diseases also. So I'm gonna have an to aspirin talk- 81, I think they need to put it in the water like fluoride. Wow. <laughs> I'm going to have to talk to my gerontologist and ask her why I'm not on aspirin. I got the, <laughs> I got the bottle of fish oil here and my vitamin D that, pills. That, that's a good idea, too. You know, the vitamin D pills because I, I am a dermatologist. I don't go out in the sun, you know, taking the dog for a walk or anything like that. Well, the, the, the dermatologists have scared us into being afraid of the sun, to use sunscreen and all our protective things, and they'll wear hats and brims and be careful. And I think now we're kind of seeing a swing the other way where people don't get out as much. They're watching TV. They're doing computer stuff. And they're staying inside and doing indoor sports and yeah, indoor bowling. tennis and so forth. Yeah, <laughs> And they don't really get out as much as they did probably 40 years ago to get in the sun to work outside and absorb the sun. And, and, and vitamin D is a, a bigger problem for uh, preventing osteoporosis and several other health problems. Wayne, I can see why they um, made you president of our medical board. Uh, it sounds like you have a book or two in you on, on uh, taking better care of yourself. I, I appreciate you being on the show today. Thank you so much. This is just the tip of the iceberg. But I appreciate you asking me, and I, it's a pleasure to do it. I hope you can come back sometime. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Feldman. I think Wayne has given us a wonderful perspective on physician assistants, who they are, and what they do. I've had a number of interactions with physician assistants in my practice, And I have tremendous respect uh, for their abilities and skills, at least for the ones that I've worked with. The physician assistants I've worked with have been wonderful team players, working closely with their physicians, knowing that the physician is ultimately responsible for the care that the physician assistant provides. Now, one day recently I had a patient who came in who loved their doctor, truly loved their doctor, but was asking me for a referral to a different doctor because the patient wasn't seeing the doctor anymore. The, the patient was seeing the doctor's physician assistant or maybe different physician assistants in that practice. I was happy uh, giving the, the patient a little advice about other practices, but I, I asked them, if they love this doctor so much, why not go to that doctor and let them know about their concerns? And, and if If someone's going to do this, my recommendation is to do it in a very positive way. Let the doctor know you love the care they're providing and that you you, you wish you were seeing the doctor and that's your only concern. It may be that the, the doctor would see that patient more frequently. But at the same time, I think it's important to recognize that seeing the physician assistant is at least in some ways, maybe not always, a form of seeing the doctor because the physician assistant supervisor is ultimately responsible for the care the physician assistant is giving. I hope you found our show today to be entertaining and informative. Next week, we'll have the eminent health economist, Professor Victor Fuchs, the professor of economics and of health research and policy at Stanford University on our show. So please join us next week. I hope you also enjoy our theme music by the incomparable Michael Zioli. Until next week, thanks for tuning in. Thanks for listening to the show today. Remember to go to DrScore.com to get and give feedback about your doctor and to read others' recommendations about doctors in your area. It's a way to choose your path to healthcare empowerment. That's D-R-S-C-O-R-E dot com. DrScore.com. 
and we'll see you next week right here on Getting Better Healthcare.